Dr. McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist. I think most of the people here are very familiar with your work, you know, and your efforts through this pandemic. He has 55 peer-reviewed publications on the infection uh, and treatment of COVID-19. I first learned of you when you gave that testimony initially at the Texas Senate. And that was really phenomenal because that was early on. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm an attorney in Akron, Ohio. We've sued five corporations, five colleges, a health department, a couple of high schools over various matters involving this pandemic and defended a young woman who had a criminal charge for quarantine, which we won. And Dr. McCullough, I'm going to have Jason introduce himself to you as well. Go ahead, Jason. Hi, Dr. McCullough. Thanks for joining us. I'm a school psychologist here in Ohio. Uh, 20 years experience. I've been working with kids for that long, primarily with teenagers now, a little bit of work with preschoolers. So that's kind of one of the reasons why I got involved with a couple of years ago. So. And Catherine, would you introduce yourself? Hi, Dr. McCullough. Thanks for joining us tonight. My name is Catherine Huey. I'm kind of a, a strange entity in Ohio. I went to uh, Case and Stanford double majored in geology and evolutionary biology, but I left academia quite a long time ago. And when this all started, I, I could see how the science is going to be kind of distorted. And I've actually spent about the last two years trying to explain the science in a way that's accessible to lay people and to also go through Ohio's data and show how what is being reported isn't actually what is actually happening on the ground and teaching people how to look at that data. So that's kind of my story. And, and Dr. McCullough, you know, to start off with, I'd actually uh, like to ask you a question. What kind of things, what do you think is most important? Well, thanks for having me on the program. As introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I, I normally use a camera a little higher above my laptop but I decided to point it up and show my University of Michigan degree up over my left shoulder there since we've had such a very, very vigorous rivalry with Ohio State. <laughs> and I can tell you in one of my little circles is a University of Michigan fan, Dave Janda. He's an orthopedic surgeon. And Dave has revealed to me that the Michigan Wolverines all took the vaccine about three days before our game with the Georgia Bulldogs. And Dave is convinced that that is related to our catastrophic loss this year against Georgia. We lost 34 to 11. Many, many in social media have said the vaccine had nothing to do with it. That was just another University of Michigan collapse. But having said that, I can tell you, you know, we were off the back end of the Omicron curve. And I think we should celebrate that busiest hospital for COVID in the United States in terms of acute referral care in Houston, led by Dr. Um, Jose Varone, just announced today zero cases of COVID in the hospital, zero. Omicron was the mildest variant. The Omicron outbreak was five to 10 times higher than any of the other curves. It broke through natural immunity. There was a paper from Qatar in New England Journal of Medicine in the last month or two indicating that natural immunity with the prior versions of the virus, a wild type through Delta, conferred about a 60% protection against Omicron, but it clearly broke through natural immunity. All the reports from the CDC and then also the published reports throughout the world indicate the majority of people who got Omicron were fully vaccinated by the majority. There's, there were clearly those who were, were still susceptible, meaning they never had COVID and they never had a vaccine. But that's where we are with the Omicron outbreak. And then the other observation is, 
We've hit the lowest rates of vaccination our CDC has disclosed since the start of the vaccine program. So what that means is that anyone who's not taken a vaccine since October 1st of 2021 is effectively unvaccinated. Now that number has not been released by the CDC, but by my back of the envelope calculations, out of 330 million Americans, I estimate 250 million are unvaccinated. And all the experts agree, CDC, vaccine manufacturers and others, that the vaccines only last six months at best. And they're, they're basically ineffective after six months. So the majority of people now in this whole decision tree about vaccination, unvaccinated, the majority are unvaccinated. So I've learned five things I'd say quickly that I would tell you that I think are operative at this point in time in the pandemic. And I've testified in the U.S. Senate in November of 2020, again in January of 2021. I was just in the Pennsylvania Senate testifying on Friday, just, just two days ago. This is what I'd say. Number one, the virus is only passed from an acutely symptomatic person to a susceptible person only. And it is not passed by two asymptomatic people. So that means on point number one, we never needed to lock down. We never needed to social distance. The only people who need to quarantine were those acutely sick. That does mean that the writers of the Great Barrington Declaration, which is Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and Martin Kaldoff from Harvard, Sunitra Gupta from Oxford, that they were right. That what we needed to do was just protect the elderly and we didn't need to lock down others. That means that Scott Atlas, who agreed with that sentiment as well, that Scott was right. It's hard to know during the thick of things, but turns out, you know, after the fact, clearly they were right. Point number two is that if, if asymptomatic people can't spread the virus, we, we don't need to test them. In fact, we shouldn't test them. There are no tests that are FDA clear for asymptomatic testing. The World Health Organization does not endorse asymptomatic testing. So what the airlines are doing, the schools, the workplaces, it's a complete overreach. People in my family are traveling tomorrow on the plane and they've had to get a test today. It's a complete waste of time. It's against the FDA regulations and asymptomatic testing is not supportable. Point number three is that once somebody gets COVID-19, in fact, I've mentioned the immunity is robust and durable against severe outcomes, meaning people don't end up on the ventilator twice. They don't end up in the ventilator in 2020 and then in 2022 or, or have severe outcomes. One can get a second infection now with Omicron, but it's almost always mild and self-limited. I found with the vast majority of Omicron cases, no treatment was needed whatsoever. And I'm one of the developers of, of an early treatment approach. Point number th uh, four is that the infection has always been treatable, but treated early. This is very important. And I published the two seminal papers on early treatment in 2020 that are still the most widely downloaded and utilized papers in the peer-reviewed literature. And it's been copyrighted, the McCullough Protocol, uh, to honor me. I didn't uh, go through the effort to do that, but it was done by others. And it's been advanced over time. But former President Trump received McCullough Protocol, and so did Governor Abbott, when the vaccines failed, Joe Rogan, Aaron Rodgers, many have received in concept the sequence multidrug therapy. But it, you should be reassured that groups working separately, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko in, in uh, Monroe, New York, and Didier Rialt in France, and Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick with the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, they, working independently, we came up with the same concepts, that we had to use drugs in combination to reduce viral replication, treat the inflammation or cytokine storm, and then use forms of uh, blood, drugs to prevent blood clotting. And that, those are the principles. It's just a matter of 
doing it early to prevent hospitalization and death. And I think everybody on the call would understand to prevent the composite outcome of hospitalization and death, we must do something before the hospital. I think that should be self-evident. And then the converse is true. If we wait till someone goes in the hospital, it can be too late. And in fact, it is too late for those who die of COVID-19. And we right now have 950,000 Americans that have died either with or due to COVID-19. That's far too many. And the majority of those deaths, in fact, have occurred inside U.S. hospitals. We've had tens of millions of hospitalizations. The failure to have comprehensive early treatment across our country, in my estimation now, 95% of these deaths could have been avoided and 95% of the hospitalizations could be avoided. We never had to go through this if we would have had uh, a very good support for uh, outpatient treatment programs. That means all the medical centers, all the medical schools. And in fact, we had just the opposite. Not a single major health system, not a single medical school had a single program to treat patients with COVID-19. They completely dropped the ball. Point number five is that the COVID-19 vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, despite two-thirds of Americans taking the vaccines, uh, the vaccines have, have failed. And the science is settled. The mortalities continue to go up. The cases continue to go up. There was no measurable impact of the U.S. vaccine program at all, none. And worldwide, uh, three analyses, a Supermanian, Camp, and BD show the, the countries that vaccinated the most have done the worst with COVID-19 in terms of cases and deaths. And it's just, I know it seems paradoxical. We had great hopes for vaccines. They just have failed. I think partly the virus was in charge the whole time. The virus basically outmutated the vaccine at every step. And so when we got to Omicron, every vaccine manufacturer announced that the vaccines weren't going to work, that they were trying to come up with new formulations. And they promised new vaccines in March, but I think it's too late now since the Omicron curve is over with. So as we sit here today, I think all the, all the mandates can be dropped. The vaccines can be pulled off the market, and then they can go and go a deep dive for safety review and figure out what went wrong with our marquee program. Our, our government put all the chips on vaccination, and unfortunately, it failed. You know, it raises the question that I was reading today about the negative efficacy of the vaccines. And we have something going on at Stanford University. Uh, and I was talking with Dr. Bhattacharya this week about that. They are apparently mandating a booster shot for the students at Stanford University right now. And they're going to pull them from classes the end of March. I mean, what would you advise a university that is mandating boosters at this point? Yeah, they have to reevaluate the, the curves as, you know, there's entire countries that are dropping vaccine mandates like the United Kingdom and, and countries across Europe. They would have to look at that. It sounds like they're just behind on the data. They're probably six or nine months. One time on Fox News, I was asked by Laura Ingram, you know, why do you have things like this going on? And to me, it just seems like it's a time lag that those who are, are you know, trying to make a decision on boosters they may not be doctors or epidemiologists. They may not be, you know, contemporarily informed on where we are. Some of these institutions, it may take a month or two to actually change a policy. So, but it sounds like they're behind. It just, it's astounding. They have John Ioannidis there. They have Jay Bhattacharya. I mean, they have the best information available to anybody from those two sources. And, and you know, and I think about Stanford University, and I think this is an 
you know, one of our top-notch uh, universities with the smartest people. How can the smart people there not understand what's happening? Well, they're not integrated. You know, when I was at University of Michigan School of Public Health, there was no integration with the undergraduate campus or the medical school. A lot of these schools of public health are completely separate. And, you know, Stanford has not been a leader in COVID-19. They haven't innovated with any new protocols. There's no Stanford protocol of how to treat COVID-19. You know, the interesting thing with COVID-19, there's no hospital that claims to be a center of excellence for COVID-19. There's no hospital that, there's no Mayo protocol or Harvard protocol. There, there, there's no billboards in cities recruiting patients to their hospital with COVID, even though the admissions, you know, pay so handsomely. It seems like hospitals are really ashamed of their, of their COVID care. They're very proud of their cardiovascular and cancer care, but it almost seems to be a, 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 a look of shame in terms of quality of care for COVID. What, what about this idea that I, I see about the negative efficacy, though, that when you're boosted or the more shots you get, actually, the worse your immune system is going to do for all kinds of things, not just COVID. It's actually going to damage your immune system. Do you have an opinion about that? Yeah, well, that's the opinion of the World Health Organization. They've come out and say the more shots you take, particularly the boosters, it's going to weaken the immune system. And I, I think that the conjecture here is because the vaccines, well, the messenger RNA vaccines we know the most about, we know that the physical messenger RNA is in the body for a couple months now. And there is a, a paper by Holtgen and colleagues that has clearly shown that you biopsy the lymph nodes, you can find the messenger RNA with the synthetic uh, nucleoside analog caps. So that's disturbing. We never thought, you know, you take a vaccine, you don't expect it to be in the body a couple months later, but in fact it is. The second thing is we know that the vaccines trick the body's cells into producing the spike protein. And now it's known in a paper by Bruce Patterson in concept that the spike protein stays in the body for a long period of time. I interviewed Bruce for my podcast and he's former Stanford University of Michigan professor. Bruce is a top, top-notch clinical pathologist. He heads a company I'll call InceldX. Bruce thinks after vaccination, the full S1 and S2 segment are in the body for probably over a year. So as the human body is loaded with this dangerous foreign protein, you're trying to clear it out. It may be a big burden and the immune system may be weakened. I asked Bruce if there's any analogous infection like this and or a situation where something stays in the body that long. He said, yeah, Lyme disease. That, that, that Lyme syndrome is also kind of a weakened immune system issue, really causes prolonged symptoms. But there's a concern that the immune system could be weakened. And uh, people have said, well, maybe that's the reason why Omicron broke through the vaccine immunity easier than the natural immunity. I, I tend actually not to agree with all that. I'll, I'll give you my interpretation. I Remember, negative uh, efficacy means uh, somebody vaccinated is more likely to get COVID or be hospitalized or die than the unvaccinated. And it's been shown in Scotland and across Europe. So negative vaccine efficacy is real. But remember, you're comparing two groups. I would wager that the majority of unvaccinated people in Scotland, and just like the unvaccinated people in America, you know, you know what the common characteristic is? They've already had COVID. They're already naturally immune. And none of these studies keep track of who, who's already had COVID. So if you compare somebody who's already had COVID versus a vaccinated person, hands down, the vaccinated person's at higher risk. So I think that's the genesis of the negative efficacy. I don't think it really means the vaccines are backfiring. It just means the vaccines don't work. Yeah. 
I, you know, I want to thank you personally so much because I got COVID in December of 2020, pretty bad, but I had seen your talk and I got a hold of some ivermectin and it came a little bit late. But when I took it, it was like I was in a fog. As soon as I took it the next morning, I woke up. It was like, you know, everything cleared up. I felt great. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, I, you know, thank God I had that. I'm 60 years old. I've got a little bit of high sugar. You know, I try to keep myself in shape the best I can. But, you know, that ivermectin was really a lifesaver. And, and I started, you know, just telling everybody about it since that time. And, you know, I know that it has helped just all kinds of people in my circle. So I greatly appreciate it. Well, you know, over 20 countries officially recommend ivermectin, and I think it's close to, you know, 40 to 50 non-government organized societies worldwide recommend it, including recommended in Japan and just south of us here in Texas, in Central America, South America. So it's widely used. Ivermectin in my practice is used in combination with other drugs, typically at least one intracellular antibiotic, doxycycline or zithromycin, because we have to cover a superimposed infection called, called an atypical pneumonia, and then inhaled corticosteroids, budesonide, oral prednisone, oral colchicine, aspirin, and then sometimes high-risk patients, wheelchair-bound or seniors, we use blood thinners. Remember, the real risk is in our seniors. People have been focusing on vaccination for children and, and schools and stuff, but honestly, the, the age of someone dying of COVID is way up in the 80s. And you know, this is still the issue of senior citizens. You haven't heard seniors on TV too much, but I bring it up all the time because in my clinical practice, the patients I worry about are the elderly. In my house right now, we, I have my in-laws and my father-in-law is 98. So let me tell you, the people in my house I worry about are not the kids. I worry about the 98-year-old. So we have to think about what's an appropriate concern and what we see in the last two years is people forgetting about our senior citizens, our parents and our grandparents, and a um, male position focus on the children. I mean, my view of what's going on in terms of vaccinating children, I mean, to me, that's really abusive to these children. There just seems to be almost zero risk to them. There is no reason to give them this highly risky uh, vaccine that, I mean, I've even read recently there may be some hint that it changes DNA or may have an impact on DNA. So I mean, what would you say to parents? Uh, you know, well, no, just to argue the other side, I mean, I, you know, I was in a point counterpoint discussion, I want to say kind of late summer of last year at the University of Dallas and an infectious disease doctor, a pediatric infectious disease doctor, you know, we worked as a, as, as a point counterpoint and he presented the case to vaccinate children. And I can tell you what the, the case is, is that those who are proposing vaccinating children, the belief is the vaccines won't work on a population level unless everybody takes them. So, you know, people readily admit that children are not at high risk, that they themselves don't need a protection. But the impetus to vaccinate children is really to try to protect the adults. And so you have to reconcile in your mind you know, does that sit well with you to kind of use children as a human shield? Do you know the same thing is true for wearing masks? Do you know I was on a call earlier today and it was somewhere in the world, I can't remember if it was the UK or Australia, where they have removed the mask mandates for the teachers, but they're still having it for the small children. I mean, this is open policy. So it has to do with 
ethically what your feelings are about using children as a human shield. Because you're, you're right, all the analyses suggest they don't benefit at all. And there was a paper by uh, House and colleagues in the CDC MMWR at the end of December that showed high rates of adverse reactions in the children and children who are taking the vaccines. There's no doubt about it that were being reported to the CDC. But then the parents also reported through the vSafe application and the parents were reporting 10 to 15% rates of incapacitation in the children getting the vaccines. So I mean, they were really getting sick from the vaccines. And I think what really um, caught people's attention in the last uh, couple of weeks is a paper by Gill and colleagues out of Connecticut, the coroner's office out of Connecticut. And it was reviewed by pathologists. They were authors from University of Michigan and University of Minnesota. This is a very solid paper. There were two teenage boys in Connecticut and the parents came home horrified to find them each dead in their beds at home separately. And they had taken the vaccine. They died on days three and four after Pfizer. And, and the parents wisely got autopsies and the children clearly died of heart inflammation, myocarditis. It's unequivocal, it was a fatal case. And we had fatal cases reported in Korea by Choi, in St. Louis by Verma and colleagues. And now there's a whole collection of fatal and near fatal cases of myocarditis. In the open VAERS data overlay query, there's 34,000 cases of myopericarditis in the CDC data system. So I can tell you in children, this is a giant concern. And in the house paper, I noted that even children five to 11, those serious cases, a hundred of them that they reported on that were called serious adverse events, the number who had an elevation in troponin for heart damage, 15%. This is the first time we've ever seen heart damage in prepubertal children. We had known the myocarditis occurs in postpubertal children all the way up to age 60 and the peak age 18 to 24. But this was disturbing of seeing some evidence of heart damage in small children taking the vaccines. They were, you know, had serious events logged for other reasons. And so uh, I think parents ought to look at this very, very carefully and, and look at the potential downsides here. And then you mentioned the most recent paper by Alden and colleagues from Lund University in Malmo, Sweden, where with Pfizer using a hepatic cell line, hepatoma cell line, they demonstrated the first piece of evidence that the Pfizer vaccine reverse transcribes. It actually, a endogenous human enzyme called the line one reverse transcriptase creates DNA from the messenger RNA and that gets into the nucleus of human cells. That's very disturbing because on the CDC website, it says the vaccines don't change the human DNA. And now we have the first piece of evidence, which is gonna take a lot of confirmation and more work, but the first piece of evidence that in fact, that's not true, that the vaccines uh, may indeed change human cells. Uh, can I jump in here? Yeah, please do. I was just going to say, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so so if I understand you right, when they, when they were talking about why children need to be vaccinated, the only reason they gave was to supposedly protect the older population. Is that is that correct? Which Wait, that's the that, that, that's in my experience talking to those who are advocating for the vaccines. Now, I don't support that view. I think vaccination should only be to protect the person who is gonna take the vaccine because that's the person who incurs the risk. But this discussion of 
having young people take the vaccines to protect the adults or have young children wear masks to protect the adults. It's the first time I've seen in my lifetime this idea of using children as a as a human shield. And I think to me, it's very disturbing. Well, and it's also, I mean, we, we can see the evidence is right in front of us that this that, on, that argument only works if it stops transmission. And we can see that it's not stopping transmission. In fact, I mean, when I look at the data in Ohio, I saw a very clear signal after the boosters came out in particular, where cases just skyrocketed. Those boosters came out specifically in, in younger populations, so 60 and under. Uh, the 80 plus year olds didn't really affect it, but 60 and under, when they started getting boosters, that's when we had a, a significant shift in the number of cases. And at that point, they were, I believe the CDC actually came out talking about that the, the viral load in the upper respiratory tract of, um, of the people who had had the boosters was the same as people who had had no vaccinations at all. And so, but but the severity of their illness was less. So. Yeah, well, let me put some uh, color on that because uh, you nailed the concepts exactly. In a paper by Emma Corsi and colleagues in JAMA, publishing on both Omicron and Delta, in the nasopharynx, there's absolutely no difference in the viral load. In fact, the cycle thresholds are alarmingly low, meaning high viral loads median cycle thresholds across unvaccinated two, two doses or three doses of the vaccine, as you indicated, the median cycle thresholds were below 20, looking at figure three. You can see uh, how precise I am with the citations because one of the strategies that we've seen is accusation on misinformation. <laughs> and what I have uh, done now is I have created a tremendous library to exactly cite the papers so everyone can understand what they're hearing right now is data, published scientific data, and it cannot be in any way, shape, or form characterized as misinformation. So those who are actually making claims on misinformation, are they, they themselves are in, in attempting to uh, mislead the public. The second, the, the papers on transmission the, the first, I think, convincing paper was by, I believe it's Sangarajam in Lancet, showing um, in Delta that it was 39% of all transmission was fully vaccinated or fully vaccinated. And now a paper in the United States by Haley Winkies and colleagues published in JAMA Open Network showed that 35% of people in a fully uh, vaccinated uh, group in a wedding, uh, in fact, passed and contributed to a, a COVID-19 outbreak in Minnesota. So it's clear. And in fact, our CDC director has been fair, I think, early in the summer when she came out and said the vaccines don't stop transmission. So when the, vac when, when the CDC told America that the vaccines don't stop transmission, that should have been a signal to all the employers and schools to never have vaccine mandates, because the only reason to have a mandate is if the vaccines stop transmission in their tracks. And what the CDC is, is, is going to say in the end is they're going to say, listen, we never said to have these mandates. We told you it didn't stop transmission. So you can see the mandates are coming from people other than the CDC. Jason, uh, do you have anything? I know you, were, you had some questions from- Yeah, Dr. McCullough, regarding people who donate plasma, you know, those people that took the shots, could the spike proteins created weeks or months after the shot 
get into the supply and negatively impact fragile patients receiving monthly plasma? And you may have already cited this earlier. Can you reference the study involving spike proteins found in the plasma of those that took the shots versus individuals with natural immunity? The paper that measured spike protein in plasma was published by Elena Ogata and colleagues in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases, which is the Journal of the Infectious Disease Side of America. And uh, she described that there was measurable circulating uh, spike protein after the first injection, and then it went down to unmeasurable in most people after the second injection, although one person did go out to 29 days where it was measurable. So it's conceivable someone took shot number one and then went to a blood donation center, donated blood. In fact, the blood, the plasma would contain the spike protein. And as you, as you imply, the spike protein can clearly be dangerous. It's probably lethal to some. Now, what has come out of this is that the American Association of Blood Banking and the American Red Cross were notified of this possibility when the Ogata paper came out. They were notified by community pathologists. I know because I've seen those letters. And, and those the blood banking organizations responded saying, we recognize the concern. There just wasn't any change made. We thought that they would restrict recently vaccinated people from donating um, blood. But then papers came out on seroprevalence. And the, the number of individuals who have circulating antibodies of some sort, either from prior infection or non vaccination, are probably so sufficiently high that the next person who donates into a pool, the spike protein is mopped up, particularly for concentrated products. Some blood products you know, take thousands of people to, to contribute. So I, I think uh, you know, without any hard data, my clinical worry is not high on that situation right now. That's true, maybe a, a, a unit of packed red blood cells, but those are largely kind of devoid of, of plasma. So I think the worry was a lot stronger last spring and my clinical worry is less. If, my, if patients ask me that all the time, I said, listen, if you need a blood transfusion, take a blood transfusion. Thank you. And also, what is your impression of the monoclonal antibodies? Is that something that we should be putting trust in as a, a medical option? I think the monoclonal antibodies have been a wonderful product of Operation Warp Speed. One of the things I see in my circles is people getting very distrustful of the government. They think everything is bad that's come from the government. And I have a different view. I think the monoclonal antibodies have always been wonderful. Bamilivimab was the first monoclonal antibody. That was approved in November of 2020 before the vaccines. So the monoclonal antibody was the first high quality product emergency use authorized because uh, you know the one before that was remdesivir, which it turned out didn't work out so well for hospitalized patients. But bamilivimab was a terrific product. The virus mutated. Then the Regeneron product, which was carisivimab and Inovimab, that worked fine. That was a workhorse product. That's what former President Trump received and, and, and the other individuals I mentioned. And we used Regeneron for a long time. And then when Omicron hit, there was a paper by Pulliam and colleagues from South Africa by modeling suggesting that Regeneron wasn't going to work. And so we shifted to Sochirivimab, which is the GSK product, which is targeted against a part of the spike protein that won't mutate so, so well. And now we have a return of a Lilly product called Bortirivimab. So I've found I've used the monoclonal antibodies in my practice consistently over greater than a year. I think they're safe and effective. And the only shortcoming is that they're not utilized. And I think, you know, a great query to do in Ohio is how many Ohioans were hospitalized and received monoclonal antibodies? 
I bet there's very few, very few. I think the shortcoming is you hospitalized a ton of patients and you never gave them monoclonal antibodies when they could have stopped the hospitalization. Well, we also had the problem in Ohio last year. I was able to report on it. I actually testified in front of the Ohio State House about it, about the number of deaths in the state of Ohio who were never hospitalized. They were people who were never hospitalized. They were sick for some amount of time, many of them, and they, they were never hospitalized. They even had deaths that were never hospitalized. They called COVID deaths that happened greater than a year after. Now, I can't do this anymore because after I testified, the state of Ohio disassociated that information from each other, from hospitalization and death data. So I can't, I can't do that anymore. But well, most listen, of our deaths are out of just, hospital. That just came up in the uh, Pennsylvania Senate on Friday. Do you recall the approximate proportion of deaths that occurred out of hospital? I have to look it up, but I want to say it was somewhere at that time a year ago. It was probably around 40 some percent. I mean, in a few minutes here, I could probably pull up. Oh, that. that's that's much larger than I estimated. I estimated maybe 10 percent were out of hospital. So I this stand was a year ago, right after the big 2020 wave and not through the Omicron as well. So I don't I, I can't I can't look at that data because the state of Ohio has concealed it uh, since I testified. Um, right. I, I stand corrected. It, it may be that uh, there were a lot of do not resuscitate nursing home patients that died you know, out of hospital. They died in their domiciliary facilities. But what I know is that when patients are hospitalized, the contemporary ICU mortality in the STOP COVID program, which is chaired out of Harvard, and for the ICU is still about 30%. And those on mechanical ventilators, the mortality can range up to uh, 80 to 90%. But even in the, the STOP IV program, which is a very high quality data program that a lot of the CDC investigators are in JAMA. The first author is 1040 and colleagues. For fully vaccinated in that study, which we knew they were in the hospital for COVID in those sick enough to you know, get in the ICU, the mortality for fully vaccinated individuals was between six and 7%. And for those unvaccinated, it was eight to 9%. It was not statistically significant, but there was an edge for those who were fully vaccinated. And when I showed that on Joe Rogan, he looked at that and he said, you know, that's not a very big difference. And he was right. And I think that was part of the blowback when I went on Joe Rogan is Joe just commenting on the data because uh, just like I'm doing tonight, I quoted the data. In fact, I brought my laptop in and I showed him the slides. It was like medical grand rounds. And if you recall, after that interview, there was a big uh, meltdown at Spotify. And Joe Rogan was accused of, of giving medical opinions. And then there was some criticism of me. And I said, listen, here's my slides. You can look at them. Spotify producers can have them. And quickly they got off of me. And then they accused Joe Rogan of, of things not related to COVID and his prior interviews regarding racial comments, what have you. So you, you can see how censorship is so strident and, and, and not really grounded in any type of reality at this point in time. We're in kind of a dark time, I think, in terms of public commentary on, 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 on really almost anything. So I, I, looked up my, I looked up my data. What I testified on was it, at the time, which was as of February 21st, 2021, 53.3% of all deaths in the state of Ohio had never been hospitalized. Okay, that's very important. And then they disassociated the data, so I can no longer do that. That's, there was no reason for them to do that. That's a very, very important point. So I stand corrected. Okay, good. We are suffering from a real corruption of data in Ohio and the suppression of data, data that we used to get routinely, such as death certificate data, 
became unavailable all of a sudden. So, you know, we're fighting these battles throughout the state, and, and it's amazing how the state has changed releases of data so that we can't get the answers that we were getting just 12 months ago. So I, it's, it's really concerning. I'm a public records attorney as well. So, you know, I'm very concerned about the direction. The, the testimony, Doug Mastriano, who's a um, senator in uh, Pennsylvania, who's running for governor, but it was a bipartisan group, both senators and congressmen in Pennsylvania on Friday. They all agreed one of the single greatest things lawmakers can do right now is really push and even, you know, write legislation if need be on medical data and public health data transparency. You know, prior to this, we, we probably had a fairly loose system on public health data, and now we need transparency. And clearly we need transparency on the vaccine program. Our state, our two sponsors of the vaccine program, the CDC and the FDA, which are really organizations that are out of their usual roles, they have not provided any transparency to America. And my expectation as a doctor is at least a monthly report. They should be telling us about vaccine injuries. The CDC should put a vaccine injury report together. Tell us, uh, you know, what are the determinants of injuries? Who's being injured? What we should look for as doctors? What we should test for? The CDC and the FDA have given us no guidance on vaccine injuries outside of myocarditis. And, you know, I've reviewed that for you today. I think it should be upgraded with the fatal cases of myocarditis. I think Parents and people ought to be fairly warned. We know the highest risk for myocarditis is actually age 18 to 24. That's consenting age college kids. And I, 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 based on the emergency use authorized FAQ, and I've read it carefully, I don't think it fairly warns uh, the young people about what can happen in terms of heart damage. Dr. you thought the booster program at Stanford would result in at least five severe cases of myocarditis out there if they implement that booster. So when the administrations choose to take that step, they know they are damaging these kids' health. I mean, it's, it's right there in the data. Jason, did you have something? Yeah, Dr. McCullough, that's kind of a good segue to the next question is, looking forward into the future, what do you anticipate the complications of the jabs may be, if you can speak to that? You know, I'm following my patients very carefully. People in my family took the vaccines. I'm not against vaccines at all. People in my family took them. I think many people took the vaccines, uh, you know, either out of their own personal medical fear of COVID-19, or they did it because they thought it was patriotic. It was the right thing to do. And you can't blame people for that, especially early in the pandemic. I'm following them carefully over time, and I'm not seeing anything arise. I mean, almost all the, the bad safety events happen in the first 30 days. The most concerning thing I've seen in a, in a woman who took Johnson & Johnson is her whole arm that took the vaccine developed a blood clot. The entire arm became a blood clot where blood could not go in and out. And she had to have emergency uh, surgery. The rib had to be removed. It was a big deal. There's something called thoracic outlet syndrome. So that there could be some sluggish flow to begin with, but it's uncanny how it happened in the same arm that was injected. Then I saw another case in a woman about 30 days. And now sure enough, there's been a case reported in the medical literature. So all women so far, the problem with that complication, and there's many complications, but the problem with that is disability. The arm is never the same. So uh, what we know in the open VARES system right now, which is conservative, meaning it looks for terms in the vignettes over the safety sheets. So it's more conservative than doing a checkbox query. But the, the numbers are staggering. You know, 44,000 Americans 
by the CDC data are permanently disabled. 44,000. This is, that's the CDC is telling us. This, this isn't conjecture. I mean, these numbers are staggering. And as more and more uh, injections are taken, we can only expect these numbers to go up. There's no reason for us to think they're going to go down. It can only go up from there, but the cumulative numbers are staggering. There's a German insurance company out by extrapolation because they're trying to piece together mass vaccination and what they're seeing with insurance claims and life insurance claims. And as you know, there's, there's, there's quite a news story developing on this because the vaccine injuries and deaths are so uh, large that the estimate is uh, that 3.6% of Germans now are disabled or injured by the vaccines. I mean, these are staggering population numbers absolutely uh, staggering. We have, the CDC told us by the fall, we had 220 million people who had at least taken one shot of one of the COVID vaccines. You know, by that time we had 1.1 million VAERS filed reports, filed reports. I mean, these are, you know, it takes a lot to file a report. It means, you know, we think that the vaccines hurt the patient. Those numbers are unacceptably high. So you know, what have you seen in boosted patients particularly? Because I, I, I watch social media very closely. And one of the things that somebody uh, turned me on to is actually a group on Facebook, I believe somewhere around five or 6,000 members in it now. It's only been in existence for about two, maybe three months about chronic urticaria. And it is overwhelmingly in individuals who took the Moderna booster but it does not seem to be acknowledged in any way. I mean, have you seen anything specifically after boosters that has been coming up, um, auto-inflammatory auto specifically? Again, I'll, I'll just restrict my comments to the published data paper by Walid Sadiq that was published in actually the journal Case Reports. The title of the paper is Cardiopulmonary Arrest After COVID-19 Vaccination and Case Report. So this patient tolerated the first 59-year-old man, tolerated the first shot fine and the second shot fine, and then he dies on the booster. So it, it implies what you're suggesting is that there maybe could be some immune priming. You know, I think a lot of people think, listen, I took the first shot fine. I took the second shot fine. You know, I, I, I should be okay. But in fact, that paper suggests uh, otherwise and, and, you know, I just think we, we just can't be that, we just can't be that self-assured. The, the booster program didn't produce any large safety data at all. We didn't have any randomized trial clinical data showing the booster program reduced uh, risks of anything. And it was based on antibody data. So I'd, I'd be fearful of people taking boosters until we learn more about safety. I know they're wildly unpopular. So, so many patients have said, listen, I took the first two shots, but I, you know, I just, I've had enough. I don't want to, I don't want to take any more. And I think that explains what the CDC is, is telling us is that we have record low vaccination rates. Now we should be having large numbers of people get boosters. Don't forget our big surge in vaccination was January, February, March, and then vaccine really tailed off in April. We should be having a huge, the vaccine centers should be overwhelmed with business. And right now they are all, you know, largely empty. We, we in got the state some of Ohio information. Oh. <laughs> in the state of Ohio, we have, you know, about 11 and a half million people. We had 837 people get boosters in the last 24 hours. That's it. 
they're not interested. We're, we're not interested in boosters. <laughs> we've no, seen no, in no. the companies, uh, doctor, we've seen in the companies that, you know, the, the folks who are not getting vaccinated are the ones who are showing up to work every day. It's the vaccinated that are having a, a frequent absences and problems, you know, on an ongoing rolling basis. So the unvaccinated are actually your better employee. And the ir irony of it is, is we've got some companies they're actually charging additional money to the unvaccinated, which are the ones who are not getting sick now. They've had COVID, they've recovered, they're good. Right, you, you can't, you know, the most important checkbox would be, did you have COVID? So, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a large cardiology practice and I've filled out all my forms, whatever. One of the forms we, we have as a checkbox is, did you have COVID? That's a very important checkbox. And, you know, I've had people from the sports teams, the NFL and, and NBA and other, other NHL reach out to me. And I said, listen, why don't you guys keep track of who's had COVID? That's pretty important because they're at low risk of anything else. And same thing with the military. Do you know the military and all the pro sports teams are not keeping track of who's had COVID? It, it, it is, is absolutely a blind spot. It's, it's amazing that's such a simple thing it, that, that, you know, if you had kids in school, you'd ask if they had chicken pox or mumps when we were kids, you know, you keep track of things. They're not keeping track of something very simple. Did they have COVID? And so I agree with you. I think it's a blind spot. Don't forget those who took the vaccine, that could also be a proxy for fear. And it could be a proxy of people who do have comorbidities, right? So people who are obese, diabetic, have other medical problems. They may have said, listen, I'm at risk. I'm going to take the vaccine. So those people may have a proclivity to stay at home compared to younger, more robust workers. But, but you're right. The idea of penalizing the workers who are showing up to work every day financially, it does seem, it seems misplaced. Well, and, and we have... Go ahead, Catherine. Well, we, we have some interesting issues in that when you, when you ask about ask the question of do you have COVID? Well, in Ohio, back in October of last year, we actually changed the rules for how we count a COVID case. Now, every 90 days, you can become a new brand new brand new line on, on the data file case of COVID. So they know who's had COVID and they're going to just keep counting those people again and again and again. And then comes the question, well, what is it that we're counting? Are we counting somebody who's actually ill or did they happen to, to walk through a room where there was you know virus in the air and they had it in their upper respiratory tract? They weren't infected or anything like that. They're just walking through a cloud and then they test positive and they're calling in a case well, again. Remember, we should have no asymptomatic testing and we definitely should not be testing people without respiratory symptoms. We so do that heavy uh, here. <laughs> right. So there are people coming in with ankle sprains that are being tested for COVID. And I was on, I was on one of the major news uh, stations and there was a, a doctor who's a hospitalist. And so we gave different views. And I think it's fine for doctors to give different views. So I gave the view that only people with respiratory symptoms who we think have COVID should be tested. I I, I was strict to say be on the label of the test label, okay? I was strict. His view was something else. He said, listen, we're in the hospital. We need to know everybody's status if they have COVID because we don't want to put a COVID positive person in a room with somebody who's COVID negative. So he had a different view. So people can have different views. But the, the point is whether or not someone's had COVID is clinically important. There's a paper from Johns Hopkins. First author is Alejo and colleagues show very good antibody assay against the receptor binding domain. If someone clinically had COVID in the past and they had a positive test, so, so you check the box, you had COVID, they had 99% rates 
of neutralizing the antibodies. If someone thought they had COVID, but they never had a test or it was too hard to get it, there was a 55% rate of having neutralized antibodies. And for people who were sure they didn't have COVID, they were sure they didn't have it, the rate of having those antibodies was 11%. That was published in JAMA. So that's a very good paper to keep in mind. That goes to show you, if you've clinically had COVID and you had a test, that's a very important piece of clinical information. It doesn't mean you can't get a mild case of Omicron, but boy, you can go about your life and not worry about, you know, you have to shudder in fear. Public, public trust has diminished with the CDC and the WHO over the last year or so. I, I agree. You know, I'm a frequent contributor on Fox News, along with Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. And that's Jay's very common point. He says that, listen, they, you know, we've just lost trust. Our CDC just didn't give consistent and regular messaging. I mean, they should have been holding at least monthly press briefing and comprehensively go over what I call the four pillars. The four pillars were contagion control, early treatment, late treatment, and vaccination. We should have had America, we should have had a COVID pandemic operation. We should have had reporting. It should have been high quality. We should have had, you know, expert doctors involved. I would have been gladly, I volunteered twice to, to help out. So did many of my colleagues, you know, we are, we are being very involved research-wise and clinically. We didn't have that. And I talked to Scott Atlas about this, actually at a seminar that I gave in Columbus. And, and Scott was, was working with these people. And, and Scott thinks that our public health leaders genuinely have good intentions for the country. He just thinks they're grossly incompetent, that they were not analyzing data. If you notice, Whenever you see a press briefing of any of the public health officials, they never quote the data like I do. Never. They can't quote a single paper. And I know Scott can. Scott goes, yeah, I do the same thing Peter McCullough does. Scott can, I can, Jay Benachar can. We know the literature because we have really taken this on. Our public health officials don't have that type of skill set to be that assiduous with the data. Yeah, that's been the that's been the experience locally as well. They they do not they do not know what they're putting out there at all, and and they don't under, they'll they say things that are nonsense. We had the situation here in Ohio. We were the first ones to do the the lottery system for for COVID. Now the interesting thing is is Ohio Ohio is one of only three states in the entire country that did not take CDC software. So we have data in Ohio that is far more expansive than than most states have. So we we have data. They're sharing data with us. It's not very quality data, but they share a lot of it with us. And some of the data that they released was on the ages of the people getting the vaccination. And I was watching it at the time when they did the Vaximillion here. It was exactly the same time as the 12 to 17 year olds were allowed to get the shot. And when they looked at their aggregate data, they said, oh, look, the Vaximillion, it created this big boost in those who took the vaccine. But if you looked at the data they put out, it actually was almost entirely contained with the 12 to 17-year-old uh, or 12 to 15-year-old crowd. And it's it's there, but it's also, it's all been erased. I mean, this data is, is erased every single day. The only way we can get this data is that I actually have a couple dozen people who have been collecting this by hand from the site for, for almost a year now. And so you can only, if you're really on top of it, can you find it? It just vanishes otherwise. But they, so, they so, say- yeah. So Catherine, I would say that 
if the, if our in a future pandemic, I think our public health officials almost ought to draft people like you. And, I've offered. And, and, I've offered. And, you know, but put people in the teams. <laughs> we needed teams of people. I mean, I ended up going to the U.S. Senate and testifying twice. I've testified in Texas Senate, South Carolina. I just did. I mean, I, I mean, as a citizen, I have devoted so much time to try to help our country get through this. And it, it's because of the failure of our public health officials. You know, I have time for one more comment or question. I have to get on for an eight o'clock tonight here, Central. So do we have a, one or do we have one more, do you think? Sure, Dr. McCullough, go ahead. If, a, if an unvaccinated, I'm sorry, if a vaccinated person has an intimate relationship with an unvaccinated, is there danger medically to the unvaccinated person? I, I think if there is, it's pretty minor. The, 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 the case example I've seen in my practice is two young people in their, let's say, 20s or 30s. And, you know, I think they had intimate contact and the unvaccinated had expression of shingles, which is like unusual in a young woman from a vaccinated man. And I've heard enough anecdotes without any published data. I just I just tell them, listen, refrain from kissing or you know, close contact, sexual contact, because we know the spike protein is travels in these exosomes. A paper by Banzel and colleagues has shown this, means the spike protein gets in little phospholipid packets and it certainly can travel. The Chinese have shown the virus itself is in, obviously it's in an exhaled breath, it's in sweat, it's in tears, it's in the GI tract, et cetera. So if the virus can be in all those body fluids, clearly the spike protein can be as well. So I think just for the kids, that will also wake them up to the consequences of taking the vaccine, no close contact for a month. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for your courage. And if you need anything, we are here to help. So if you need something out of Ohio, we'll help you get it. We have wonderful natural experiments going here with the Amish population, with half the school districts unmasked. We've got great data. Catherine's done a superb job. Anything you need, we're at your service, okay? And please get some rest. <laughs> and thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be on with you and great to see you in person. Okay. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for being on tonight. That, that was wonderful to have him here. And thank you, Jason and Catherine. <laughs> and all the folks who are online. Um, and I appreciate you all for listening in. All right. So Ohio stands up. Jason, we need to raise funds for cases and for everything. We do. Uh, I just love to see everybody in Cincinnati on Saturday, April 9th with Dr. Brian Artis and of course, Warner and Catherine and uh, the Cincinnati plaintiffs and Doug and Roshan Golden will all be there. Tickets can be purchased at ohiostandsup.org. And I'm going to be out in the Toledo area. When am I scheduled to be out there? This is on the 18th. As will I be, Warner. Okay. On the 18th, we'll be out in uh, Toledo. And where is that? Where is that event, Catherine? I do not know if it's. I've got the address here. It's 24 Summit Street, uh, Toledo, Ohio. 24 Summit Street, Toledo, Ohio, and that's it. It's the Northwest Freedom Link. If you're interested in buying tickets, it's through Northwest Freedom Link. We can put it in the in the comments, at least on Facebook, and however you might do it with okay. the audience. Ohio, Northwest Ohio Freedom Link. There you go. You guys are much better at this than me. I'm I'm the inexperienced one here. So.
<laughs> Boy, that was wonderful. I mean, I you saw my question. I had so many questions for him, and I had so many other things I could have gotten into. But boy, I think he was spot on with a bunch of stuff here, and I I'm so happy we were able to have him be part of this joint uh, effort between Ohio Stands Up, the Mendenhall Law Group, and on the data with Catherine Hewick, the famous Catherine Hewick. <laughs> Hardly. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. I think we'll we'll sign out here. And oh, the links that he referenced, he actually has a uh, he has he has kind of a, a bibliography of those. If you dig down at healthfreedomcouncil.com, there's something there's a there is a link to documents and look under experts. I think it's there. If it's not there, I'll make sure to upload his his list, but we do have his list of citations, the bibliography. So, all righty. Well, thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> all right. Bye.